We'll open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. We'll get back to our study of the book of Ephesians. Specifically, we're starting a series this morning that will last for a few weeks. I have no promises how long it will be uh, on imploring the God who hears. It's a study of Paul's magisterial prayer at the end of Ephesians chapter 3. And for this morning, we'll be dialing in to the very first part of that prayer, which, full disclosure, is just the introduction to the prayer. We'll get into the specific prayer request beginning next week, but there's a lot of ground to be laid in this first few phrases. And that is prayer for the power of God's Spirit. Prayer for the power of God's Spirit. Let me read this passage for us, the entirety of the prayer, and then we'll go back and isolate our study this morning on verses 14 through 16. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. Paul says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. During my first year of seminary, the school had an interesting adjustments in its curriculum. The administration was very wise to notice that there was so much instruction, so many classes talking about talking for God, preaching. But they also noticed that there was very little in the curriculum about talking to God, prayer. So they decided to make a, a requirement for every student to go through a semester course on prayer. I was in the very first class taught by Dr. James Roscup. It's not an exaggeration to say that Dr. Roscup had a, an influence on my life that was truly, truly inter eternal. We studied God's Word that whole week, that whole semester, on what God's Word said about prayer and about the prayers in God's Word. It might interest you to know that this class, this first class, motivated Dr. Roscoe to write a book on prayer regarding the expositions of all the passages of prayers themselves and passages about prayer in the Bible. Well, that book took him about 15 years to write. It became a four-volume, 3,000-word work. It's now in my library. 
Dr. Roskup went home to be with the Lord. I'll never forget it on November 5th, 2020, because that's our mine and Kim's anniversary. And there was a sweet day of reflection all that day. He was an amazing man, one of the most incredible men of prayer I've ever met. I had this class with him in 1988. I was back at a shepherd's conference in 2014. And Dr. Ruskup caught me on the patio and asked me about a prayer request I had given him in 1988 that he hadn't checked off his list because he didn't know how it ended, so he just continued to pray for it. Most of the assignments in this class were pretty standard. We had to write a significant term paper on prayer. I remember doing it on Daniel 9, prayer of Daniel, and we had to read several books on prayer, and they were very encouraging. But there was one assignment that was truly a game changer. We were required to pray during that semester for one hour a day. We had to keep a journal of our, a time log of our prayers and a journal of the things that we prayed for and to watch what God had done in reference to answering those prayers. Well, I lived in Burbank, California at the time. And that first night I went home, I decided to be efficient with my time as I prayed. So I drove down with this assignment on my mind to the Burbank High School and decided to walk around the track for an hour, get some exercise, and talk to the Lord. So I got on the track and started to walk and pray. I began to pray about what I usually prayed about. I prayed about the people I knew and the people I loved, my family and my friends. I prayed about the ways I wanted to grow and the sins I wanted to repent of. I prayed about missionaries that I knew and cared for. And, and then, uh, then it happened that I ran out of things to pray about and looked at my watch, which clocked that I had been praying for a grand total of 15 minutes, and I had 45 minutes left. So I remember praying for the gal running on the track and <laughs> the guy doing yoga on the inside of the track and um, the students who would be learning at the school the next day. I, it was a shock to my system how weak my prayer was. But that did something in the coming days. Knowing that that hour assignment was coming up, I began to look at life way differently. In fact, I began to say, oh, I need to pray for that. I need to pray for that. And then I went back to Dr. Roscoe and said, do I have to keep a list and wait until, and I pray for one hour? He says, no, just an hour during the day. That helped me quite a bit. It was humbling. It was a life-changing experience that night and that semester. Prayer is wonderful, but can we just say it? Prayer can be hard. I think it's fair to say that most believers wrestle with how to pray and what to pray. Prayer is indeed a learned behavior. We've said this many times. We have record of only one thing the disciples ever asked Jesus to teach them. We find this in Luke chapter 11, verse 1. It happened that while Jesus was praying, remember that, 
in a certain place, after he had finished praying, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. Don't miss the scene there. They heard Jesus pray, which motivated them to say, can you teach us to do what you did like you did? Prayer. The disciples must have concluded that the way that Jesus prayed, the things that Jesus prayed about were so substantively different than, the what, than what they prayed about and the way they prayed. They, they wanted to learn how to approach God the way Jesus did. Again, telling us that prayer is a learned behavior. But prayer is also possible the moment of conversion. The instant a person is a Christian, you have all you need to talk to God and to pray. You ever seen, we live in the Midwest. I trust that you've seen this. If not, I would encourage you parents to find a farmer who's a friend and take your kids. It'll be just in a few weeks to do this. You ever seen a cow have a calf? It's an amazing experience. I remember the first time I saw that, I was in the sixth grade, a friend of mine, his dad was a farmer. The, uh, the cows were calving. And so he said, come over. And I watched, uh, we, we called it three, three cows drop calves in one day. It was an incredible experience. Calves are born with the ability to stand, walk, and see instantly. But they don't stand walk and see in those early moments like they do in the coming weeks and months and we can even say years. Sometimes it takes uh, a calf just a moment. They hit the ground. They stand right up. Sometimes it takes them two or three minutes, sometimes a half an hour, sometimes up to two hours to get on their feet. But pretty quick after they're born, they, they know how to stand, how to walk, and how to see. They get better at it with practice and time, though. Can, can we apply that crude illustration to our prayer lives? If you're a Christian, the moment you believed you were given the ability and the relationship to talk to God, to pray, but I think God's intention is that we stabilize, we grow, we, we get better at it. I think every believer... Let me say this, almost every believer would confess a desire to improve our prayer life. You know, there's kind of a, an, an easy pitch in the preacher's uh, batter's cage. If you ever want to have instant conviction, preach on prayer or evangelism. Because no one does it like we want to and everyone instantly feels conviction. Well, welcome to my world of conviction on prayer this morning. If we're not growing in our understanding of prayer, we fall into the habit of, of praying the same old things about the same old things. And if you would step back from your prayer life just a minute and say, am I praying the same old things about the same old things? It might give us an indication that we need to grow a little bit in our understanding of how to talk to God. Can I give you a quick, practical, what we call pro tip for increasing your spiritual maturity and maintaining your spiritual stability, for maximizing your spiritual enjoyment of your relationship with God through Christ? Here's a pro trip, pro tip. Learn to pray better. Learn to pray better. You say, what does that mean? Well, Paul tells us in this epistle. For example, in chapter 6, verse 18, he says, increase the frequency of your prayers. He says, pray at all times. 
Yes, we should have prescribed times of prayer, but Paul says prayer should be like breathing. You're just always doing it. He also tells us to pray better means to deepen our theological content in our prayers. That comes from Ephesians 1 and verse 18. We looked at Paul's prayer back in chapter 1, that the eyes of our heart being enlightened would know the hope of his calling. And now here in chapter 3, we'll see that his theological understanding informed the way he prayed and what he prayed. So deepening the theological content of your prayers. Also praying better means that we intercede more intentionally for others in our prayers. What, what do you pray for the people that you know and love? How do you pray for them? And is it predominantly prayers related to this life and this earth? Or is it about their soul and eternity? I like what Walter Layfield says. He writes, We tend to think of prayer more as a means of setting our requests before God than as a means by which God accomplishes His work. We'll see this in the coming weeks, but prayer is designed for us to bring our requests to God for sure, but it's also designed for us to see our requests at the throne of God and adjust our own self-understanding. We'll come back to this, but are, 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 you, are you bitter at someone? Pray for them. See how, how easy it is to maintain bitterness at the throne of grace. Angry with someone? Pray for them. Anxious about something? Pray about it. In the next few weeks, we're going to unpack Paul's prayer here at the end of Ephesians 3. It's the second, as I said, of Paul's significant prayers. The first is in chapter 1, verses 18 to following. Many implications. It's really difficult coming to this prayer to say, what, what do we do with this? So as an exegete, as a hermeneutician, as a homiletician, as a preacher, I look at this and say, well, so what? And there are so many so what's. For example, it's a model for how we can pray. Just as the disciples looked at Jesus, heard him pray and said, we want to pray like that. We can look at Paul, hear his prayer and say, we want to pray like that. So we can model and imitate it. It can also serve as a recalibration of how we pray for others. The way that Paul thinks about others and what he prays for is so foreign to most of the prayers we hear uttered about each other. I think it should be a recalibration and a reset. It also shows us what our aim should be in our walks for Christ. In other words, if I hear what Paul is praying about the Ephesian believers, those should be things for which I, I aspire in my own walk. It kind of lays out, here's the path to spiritual maturity that Paul prayed for. So for our study today, I want us to consider one of those implications. I want to consider imitating or replicating Paul's prayer. The disciples looked at Jesus and said, we want to pray like that. We're going to listen to Paul, and I trust say we'd like to pray like that. I'm calling these replications. These are things that we can imitate and learn. They're training wheels for our own recalibrating of our prayer life. And I think that it'll help the way we pray, not only for others, but we'll really refocus, reorient how we pray for our own hearts. So let's break it down like this. Just this very first introduction to the prayer. Two replications for accessing the power of God's Spirit. That's where he starts. 
He asks for God's power to be operative. Two replications, let's pray like Paul, two replications for accessing the power of God's Spirit. The first way we'll do that is in verses 14 to 15, seeking God with theological precision. That first replication is to do what Paul did, seek God or seeking God with theological precision. I think this helps us not to have sloppy prayers so that we're praying the same old things about the same old things. Seeking God with theological precision. The first way we do that underneath that, letter A, is praying with a humble posture. Praying with a humble posture. It's seeing ourselves in light of God and seeing God in light of ourselves and having an appropriate response. Sometimes physical, but always in spirit. Praying with a humble posture. Look at verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. Now, we got to start with for this reason. What reason? Well, what's interesting is you may remember when we studied chapter 3, verse 1, he says that same thing. Look back at chapter 3, the first verse. He says, for this reason, and then he gets sidetracked, which is so often the wonderful case with the Apostle Paul's writing. I remember in Romans, it was a side after a side, after footnote, after footnote, and he would but he always comes back to where he, where, where he started. For this reason, and then he gives this major parenthesis between verses 2 and 13, and then he comes back in verse 14 and repeats himself. He says, okay, now we're going to do it for real. For this reason. What reason? Well, the reason of chapter 2 picks up the load, the load of spiritual blessings that we studied in chapter 2. Christ makes us spiritually alive in Him in verse 5. He raises us from the dead in verses uh, 1 to 3. We're His workmanship in verse 10. We're no longer strangers and aliens with each other, but fellow citizens with the saints, Jews and Gentiles, different backgrounds, all before God. We are no longer aliens, but a part of God's household, verse 19. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, New Testament revelation in verse 20. We're being built together into a dwelling place of the Spirit of God in verse 22. For this reason, it just motivates him to pray. Theological truth, motivated, compelled, and inspired Paul to talk to God. Specifically, Paul's compelled to pray for the Ephesians to apply the power that their amazing position in Christ had provided. You've been given all this. Live like it. You've been given this amazing sports car. Drive it. He starts by mentioning his posture in prayer. I bow my knees. Stop right there. This is kneeling, and it, it was surprised me to find in studying this, kneeling is, is, is a rare posture to pray uh, within in scriptures. It's there. Uh, we'll note some areas, but most prayer postures in the scriptures were standing up with lifted hands, usually the hands in a, in a receiving posture, not how most people would say if you want to Lift your hands in worship, you do a touchdown for Jesus. Lifting your hands means to lift them to receive what God is giving you. It also meant to lay down with your face on the ground. 
prostrate. Humble, self-effacing, standing, ready to receive. Kneeling was an outlier. They did it, but not a lot. We can look elsewhere how Paul speaks of bowing, kneeling the knee as, as a sign of humble submission. For example, and just, just let me geek out on this for a second. In Romans 11:4, he quotes 1 Kings 19:18, where Paul tells Elijah, excuse me, where God tells Elijah, Paul was not there with Elijah, I know that, where God told Elijah that 7,000 men have not bowed the knee to Baal or to Baal, sign of submission. Then in Romans 14, 11, Paul quotes Isaiah 45, 23, where God proclaims that only he is truly God alone and that every knee will bow and every tongue will give him praise one day. He quotes the same passage, Isaiah 45, 23 and Philippians 2, 10, when he says, every knee will bow to Jesus Christ, showing that Jesus is God and God alone. That's why he's given the name Lord in that passage. The point is simple. Bending the knee is a humble physical expression of someone submitting to someone greater. Paul says, I bow my knees. I I get on my knees in humble submission to God. He's going to tell us in chapter 6, verse 18 to pray at all times, and it's impossible to bow all the time. So that means you're praying in any posture. That's a given, okay? Do you, have you ever got on your knees to pray? I think it's a wonderful exercise. You say, well, my knees would hurt. That's okay. Use a pillow. You say, it'll be uncomfortable. That's okay. He's the Lord. I can't stay very long. You don't have to stay forever. Pretty, but have you, have you bowed the knee in humble submission? Literally. Figuratively, we should do that every time we pray, right? We, we, we're acknowledging, Lord, you're, you're, you're the Lord. As we'll see in a minute, you're the Father. I would just encourage you to take an extra step to, to not talk to the man upstairs. How disrespectful to bow your knee to the God of the universe. Then he shifts. Look at this theological precision here, his posture. He he talks about the Father. I bow my knees before the Father. Don't forget how Paul began Ephesians, chapter 1, verse 5. God predestined us to adoption as sons, daughters, through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. The fact that he adopted us makes him our father and we his sons and daughters. He personally went to the sinful orphanage of this world and chose you to be his son and his daughter. Don't ever let go of that amazing reality. Romans 8 talks about this. Verse 14, for all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption 
as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Dad, Father, intimacy. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also. Not just now, but forever. Do you pray with a humble posture to your father? He goes on now to describe that fatherliness of God. We come to our second subpoint: praying with informed theology. Informed theology. He doesn't just say father. He says father, verse 15, from whom every family in heaven on, and on earth derives its name. So you know, full, full disclosure, I... I probably read 10 opinions about what this means this week. And they were all pretty compelling. Um, what makes it complicated is uh, every family, family in heaven and on earth. So what does that mean, in heaven and on earth? What, what are families on earth? We, we know that. But what is a family in heaven? Some people say, well, it means the angels. It can't be the angels because the angels don't have families. They don't marry. They don't have children. So I think what Paul is simply saying is this, based on the context of chapter 2. Every family in heaven on earth is those living and those dead, Jew and Gentile. God is the one who gives names and source to every family on the earth. That, that'll make you think twice about how you pray for your family, won't it? God gave you the brothers and sisters you have, the parents you have or had the children you have. And even if there's heartache or disappointment in any of those relationships, they are no less a gift from the Heavenly Father to make them a part of your family. And the way to solve any frustration or bitterness with your family is to pray for them, is to pray with them, is to pray about them. God is the Father who is the one who creates. Look back at verse 9. Look at the last phrase, God who created all things. And I think that's in mind here that he's the Father from which every family gets its origin, its name. Listen to Dr. Horner, who's ever our guide as we go through Ephesians. He says, quote, He is a God who is alive and acting in the present time rather than a God who has died and is no longer active in history. He is the Father, in other words. God's ability to create and name every family in heaven and on earth stresses His sovereignty and His fatherhood. He is the one who is able to perform more than we ask or think as expressed in the doxology in verses 20 to 21, end quote. I think the point here is that Paul didn't talk to just God. He gave some attributes of God. Again, he didn't talk about the man upstairs. He was very theologically precise in addressing God. He thought about his nature, his character, who he is and what he does, what he has done. That informed the way he approached addressing God. He prayed with theological information and understanding, which made him precise. And I think what we believe about God informs how we talk to God. Theology matters a lot. 
So the first replication for accessing the power of God's Spirit, we seek God with theological precision, which means we're praying with a humble posture, and it means we're praying with informed theology. The second replication for accessing the power of God's Spirit is seeking God for spiritual power. It seems obvious, but it's so easy not to do. Seeking God for supernatural or or spiritual power. We'll break this down into a couple of subsections as well. First of all, seeking God for spiritual power means praying according to the infinite, to God's infinite resources. Praying according to God's infinite resources. The, the way I phrase that is very important because it's the way that Paul phrases it. Verse 16, he seeks the Father from which every family derives its name, its source, its origin. That, verse 16, he would grant you according to the riches of his glory. It's important to see that he grants us according to his riches and not out of his riches. If I have $20, my son says, Dad, I need some money, and I give him $5. Now, I wrote this down so I get the math right. I now have $15 left. Is that correct? Is that good? Okay. And he has $5. So my giving him out of my riches diminished my wealth. See that? It's not what it says here. He gives not part of his wealth. He gives according to the riches, not just of his wealth, of his glory, his entire being. Listen, don't let that slide past your mind so fast. He has and has made everything. When we go to him, he is beyond resourceful. He is able to answer any of our requests. He gives according to, not out of. His wealth is not diminished when he gives like ours is. He gives according to. Let that sink in. The point is sufficiency and abundance. He has all we need, and he he has more than we need. It's impossible to talk about this without sneaking a glance down the page. Verse 20. Now to him, some of my favorite words in the Bible, who is able to do, and this, I'm sorry, in the Greek and in the English, this is actually almost hilarious. It's just, he takes the volume and he goes, click, 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 breaks the volume. Look at this. To him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all. That's a lot. You say all of what? All we ask or think. Do, Do you wonder sometimes if our prayers bore God? He said, that, that, that's all you're asking? You know I can give you from the infinite wealth of my eternal glory. And you're asking me for a sale at Macy's? 
It's okay to ask for the sale at Macy's. Just read this. And I'm embarrassed about my prayers to the Lord. He is able to grant according to his eternal glory. We just pray these little prayers. And I just wonder if the angels ever elbow each other and say, do they know what they could be asking for? We'll come back to that in verse 20. Are you confident in God's wealth and in God's ability to answer your prayers? The infinite, unsearchable, sufficient, and abundant riches of his glory are available to us by asking. Why is this important? This is the crux of this passage. Letter B, because of the needful, our needful hearts. Because of our needful hearts. He prays that according to the majestic, unsearchable majesty of his glory, we would be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. There's a lot there. Let's, let's, let's break it down. First of all, let's kind of work backwards. The inner man. What's the target here? What's he talking about? Well, the inner man, is, is a, there's a parallel to that if you look down in verse 17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So our hearts and our inner man are the same thing. I like what... My old mentor, Dr. Zimnick, calls this part of us. He says, it's the mission control central of who you are. This is where we live and make decisions and emote and respond and think. It's our inner man. It's our heart. We'll just we'll come back to that in a moment, but go, now go back to the phrase that we will be strengthened with power, with ability. Now, the first thing you have to ask is a power and ability to do what? Before you get too far ahead, the, the rest of the prayer is going to answer that. The, the first thing, as we'll see in a second, is to have Christ as supreme in our minds. Look at the next phrase in verse 17. You want power through his spirit so that Christ may dwell on your hearts through faith. I mean, part of that is being enabled to be Christ-centric in our affections. Next week is going to be just about that. So just put that as a placeholder in your mind. But he says, strengthen with power, not just willpower, not just discipline, power through his spirit. Folks, this is supernatural ability, supernatural enablement. This is doing things, very important, we could not do without him. Like what? like Christ dwelling in our hearts through faith, like comprehending with all the saints the incredible love of Christ, being rooted and grounded in love, being filled up to all the fullness of God and trusting God's ability. 
Those are supernatural affections, supernatural dispositions, supernatural inclinations, supernatural desires we wouldn't have without him. Which makes us ask, do we pray for those things for ourselves? Do we pray for those things for our children? Do we pray for those things in our, for our spouse, for, for our friends? Are we praying these kind of supernatural things? Why? Because he's able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask. What a God. What access. But would you notice that we wouldn't be objects of this prayer unless our hearts were needful for these things? I think implicit in this is that we pray for these realities because our hearts are needful for them and going to our own replication if we don't pray for these realities are we not openly confessing to God that we don't need him to access this, these realities let's say it this way a believer's Lack of prayer is a believer's confession. He doesn't, she doesn't need God. We need the Holy Spirit's enabling power to have the right affections, to obey in the right categories. This inner man is the focus Listen to a parallel prayer in Colossians chapter 1, verse 9. Paul says, for this reason, after theological reflection, he says, for this reason, the same pattern. Since the day we heard about, we've not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Hear how that's aimed at the inner man, the heart so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the inner man knowledge of God, strengthen, here it is, with all power. You say, well, I thought that was a divine power, a spiritual power. He says next, according to His glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness, patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father. There he is again who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. So just like in Ephesians, Paul in Colossians makes the focus on the inner man, the heart, the inklings of the mind, the place where our desires reside, the place where our decision-making happens. That's the heart. That's the inner man. It's all a function of thinking. It's all a function of our mind, our mission control central. I can't resist, please forgive me. I can't resist, look across the page. Ephesians 4, 17, listen to all these noetic, the, the, the Greek word for mind, these, these thinking terms. Ephesians 4, verse 17, I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer, live no longer as the Gentiles live or walk in the futility of their, what? Mind, being darkened in their, what? Understanding. Excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance. Hear all these mind words? That is in them because of the hardness of their mission control central, their heart. They become callous. 
giving themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. We'll talk about this when we get here. But bad, lustful thinking comes from bad thinking. Wrong thinking. And then he says, listen to this mental word, but you did not learn to live this way? No. To act this way? No. You didn't learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard him and been taught in him just as truth is in Jesus. Then he goes to the, your former life. Verse 23, that you would be renewed in the spirit of your mind, your heart, your inner man. When we get to Ephesians 5.18, we'll see that we're to be controlled, influenced, filled by the spirit, which parallels Colossians 3.16, letting the word of Christ dwell in us richly. How is this related? He wants us to be strengthened with power, back to 3.16, through his spirit in the inner man. Why? Why? Next phrase. So that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. Next week, we're, we're only going to look at that phrase because it's so wonderful. Important footnote. Does this mean that we should only pray for people's hearts and their inner man? We should never pray for someone who, who's infirm? Not, no, 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 not at all. Philippians chapter 4, verse 5. Let your gentle spirit be made known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in, what's the next word? Everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Of course we pray for physical infirmities. That's a given. I think this raises the question that we need to ask. Are we praying for spiritual realities as well? Look, I get our, our prayer chain emails all the time, and I praise God for those. I pray for those. But they are largely about physical issues, and I don't think they shouldn't be. That, that's fine. And I also think that the spiritual realities we're praying for each other in the inner man might not be best put to the four winds on a, on a prayer request or a prayer chain. That's okay too. The question is not, should we or can we pray for physical realities related to our bodies, our tents in this world? That's a given. The question is, do we pray for the inner man, the heart, the soul, mission control central, the affections, the desires, the inclinations, the decision-making center. Listen, I was, I headed in for brain surgery back in 2002, and you can be sure, I wanted everybody I knew praying about my brain surgery. But I look back at that time and how serious that was, and I wish I could tell you that I saw it the prayers of my friends for the health of my soul with, with as equal urgency. What would our church be like if we caught fire for praying for each other's inner man, heart, decision-making centers? Heart change through the Spirit's enablement is what Paul is praying for. It's supernatural. He prays about it. Why? 
Well, that's just a setup so that he can pray that Christ will dwell in our hearts through faith, verse 17. We'd be rooted and grounded in love, verse 17, able to comprehend with other believers the fullness of the love of Christ, verses 18 and 19, be filled up to the fullness of God. Do, do those prayer requests roll off your lips when you're praying for others? Here's what I learned when I was back in that prayer class. Is that the more scripture I read and thought was thoughtful about, the better informed my prayers became. Prayer is a discipline, but it's not a chore. So very quickly, four bullet points that I found in my own heart reflecting on this. Number one, <laughs> I feel a little silly saying it, pray. I mean, how we pray and what we pray is irrelevant if we're not praying. <laughs> right? Do you have a prescribed time to pray? Do you have an appointment with God on your calendar to talk? Pray. Pray formally, pray informally, pray at specified times, pray spontaneously. But are we praying? You don't have to pray for an hour, but maybe we should try to see how fast you run out of data. And then go back and get more data to pray. Number two, pray with humility, just as Paul bowed his knee before the Father. Pray with humility. We need to remember whom we are speaking with. Paul's, Paul's prayers were humble and theologically informed, and so should ours be. Number three, pray for spiritual power or spiritual enablement, spiritual health. Pray that souls are healthy, not just that bodies are healthy. Oh, please pray for the health of our bodies, but just know this, Paul says, our outer man is decaying. And then lastly, we'll see this, this is the introduction to next week. Pray for concentrated focus on Jesus because that's exactly where he'll go next. We need to pray that this is the introduction to next week. That the object of our affections would be Jesus himself. That Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith. I'm not sure there's a better, more accurate description of the essence of being a Christian than that phrase. Christ dwells in our hearts through faith. Let that inform how you talk to the Lord this week.